Uh, so you're stuck with me. Uh, I just thought we'd... Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, if we could take a moment to pray for them in their travels, and uh, they're taking uh, Ellie and Clark down to college in Southern California, and I think they probably log in or go into their rooms probably this weekend. Um, so if we could just take a moment and pray for them, I think they would appreciate it. And I'd just love to see him back here safe and sound and the kids have a great year at school. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you gave us a pastor who's leading us, Lord, and teaching us from your word. Uh, he does so much for us. He and his wife, Melissa, just are a blessing to us. And we just ask that you give them safe travels home, that um, Ellie and Clark would have a great year in college, and that, uh, Lord, that they would learn about you at Viola, and that they would be useful for your kingdom by the time they graduate, Lord, and that you would use them mightily. So again, Lord, we just pray for safe travels on the freeway for Nate and Melissa as they come home. And Lord, uh, I need you this morning. I want to deliver your message, Lord, not mine. So I pray, Lord, you'd give me words and give me clarity and not get lost in too many details. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I was reminded of a relative of Jane's we ran into, her cousin over in Utah. And he said something to me that was quite startling I'd never heard before. Um, but I can kind of see how you, you might come to that conclusion. If, if you read the Bible, some of the Old Testament stories are a little weird, a little quirky, or at least they are to me. And um, at a casual reading, you might, you might say, well, gee, God behaves this way in this circumstance and something totally different in another. And you might wonder, um, as he said, he said, um, he thinks... God was just trying to figure it out as it goes along, right? He didn't really have a plan. He didn't, yeah, yeah he created them, but he didn't know how they operated or something. But I could kind of see it in, in his mind's eye that, that uh, the way God operates is a little peculiar, at least to our casual reading. It's like, uh, I was quite shocked at that. But I thought, it's a good question. And that's kind of the genesis of what I'm doing this morning is a, a continuation of what we did last, I think it was early February, in Genesis. Um, we're going to do kind of a quick flyover as we did back then. We went from Genesis 1, the creation, all the way up to Abraham receiving the call and the initial promise that God gave him. And my uh, assumption in all this is that Genesis, and maybe all of the Bible, isn't so much about the people in it as how they react with God and how God interacts with them. You know, in the, in the, um, in the Genesis account, we, we look at creation and God's, you think, wow, he's really powerful. You know, in, in the flood, you, you have to conclude that God has standards about how men should live and they didn't do a very good job. And so he does judge it. You know, you, sometimes you hear people say, well, God is love. That's true, he is. But he's also holy and righteous. 
And he does judge people who violate his laws. Um, trying to think where I was going there. Got started. And, um, that was a, a start in what we learned in the last 12 years. Let's see if I can find my beeper here. Let's see. Where are we at? Okay, so it's, it's going to be a summary of, of Abraham. We ended with chapter 12 last time. We're going to pick it up at chapter 12 and go th through um, not quite the end of Abraham, just because we haven't got enough time. And then we're going to end with Isaac. Um, I think I told you last time... Um, Again, this is something I made up in my own mind, and it's a little disrespectful of God, and I don't mean it that way, but it's kind of like Genesis is like the Hebrews just came out of Egypt, and they're on their first date with God. They just don't know what he's like. What's, what's his nature? What's his character? What does he like and dislike? And so as the story unfolds in Genesis, he kind of reveals his nature, I think. And... Um, so that's, that's sort of the premise of what I'm going to talk about here. It's like he reveals who he's like through the characters in, the, in, in, in Genesis and what they experience, the problems they encounter, their mistakes, their lack of faith. All the things that they do kind of show up in the story, but you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to start here at a... Whoa, what happened? At um, there we go. It's about it's about 400 years after the flood, right? Noah's flood, and we're about 2,000 years since creation. If you just use the Bible chronology kind of as it's laid out, there's a lot of controversy about that. And I don't really want to get into it, but in terms of the Bible story that that we're given, it's about 2,000 years since creation. Okay, maybe maybe it doesn't show up, but that dashed line there is uh, is the flood. And Abram is up towards about the, the fourth one from the top on that timeline. So that's about 2,000 years on the bottom, and these are all the descendants from Adam to Joseph. So what did we learn about man? I think we, we, we talked about this a little bit. Man chooses to sin regularly. He just doesn't like to do what God wants him to do. We look at, what was it, Cain, Adam, a lot of them. Um, when when we read the account of the, of the flood, right, God described it, that the people who lived then were just desperately wicked. They just did all sorts of crazy things. Yeah, almost all men get progressively further from God's truth and develop a progressively poorer concept of who God is and what he wants. Man hasn't learned much, it seems like, from God's warnings. So there was the flood, right? I think I talked about this. God's revelation in the Bible is progressive. It's starting out with just some real simple concepts about God. And by the time we get to Revelation, we've got a whole lot bigger picture of who he is and what he wants of us. But these guys don't have all the Bible. Matter of fact, they have no Bible. All they have is what Moses told them in the book of Genesis. Uh, we talked about some of that. God is good, right? He cares about things that are good. Adam's life had a purpose. He was to take care of the garden. He, he perhaps didn't know then that he was representing us. So when he sinned, we sinned, right? There's a lot of things that happened in Genesis that are the basis of what we're looking at now. 
God cares about man and his creation, right? Since he's the creator, he gets to make the rules, right? He has expectations for man, and there's consequences for disobedience. This is all laid out in Genesis. We don't think about it as much when you're way over in the New Testament, but the basics of our faith and our relationship with God are all laid out in Genesis. It's pretty obvious by the time we get to Abram that there's something terribly wrong with man's relationship with God. We've just messed up on many, on many uh, avenues. We need something to heal that relationship. You might conclude from the flood that God had just given up on man. I think it even says something about like that, where God is totally fed up and he's going to destroy them, except there are some that are righteous and he saves them. He provides them a way of escape from the judgment. He puts them on the ark, right? Well, we have that same problem that we're disobedient and God has provided us a way out. We have an ark and that's Jesus. So did God give up on man at that point? You might conclude that he had, but what did he do? I mean, would you give up on your children and when they had uh, done something really grievous? I look at my life and think of the things that I've done and thankful that my parents didn't give up on me and, you know, hung in there. I look at my daughter and I try to think, Mark, don't give up. She's a pretty good girl. <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong impression. She's a good girl. <laughs> She's worked hard. Um, but she's probably going to encounter some challenges in her life. Am I going to give up on her? Did God give up on man? I think the answer is pretty clear. No. But what did he do? Instead of waiting for man to clean up his act, God said, okay, I'm going to reach out to man and start a new relationship. So he reaches out to Abraham, excuse me, Abram at the time, and gives him the covenant, Right? Let's see if we can recall what the covenant was. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's a lot of good promises that Abram got, right? I wonder what I would do if I was a heathen and God walked up to me and gave me these promises. I sure would have gotten my attention, I think. And I think that's, what, that's what's happening here. I don't think we discussed it last time. Was there something special about Abram? Was he like this really uh, sharp guy who uh, was very successful in all his life? It doesn't really say. I think he's just an ordinary fella that God decided to say, I'm going to demonstrate. I mean, I don't know. God may have seen something in him that I'm, it isn't revealed in Scripture, but it looks like he reaches out to an ordinary guy and says, I'm going to start new with you. We're going to create a new relationship between me and man, and it's going to start with you. Like, wow. So, after Abram received the call, what did he, he obeyed, right? He left Ur, took his whole family. He left everything behind. I mean, the remainder of his family, his, everything he knew, his job, his wealth to an extent, I know he took some with him, but that's a lot to leave everything you know and go to a land that God hasn't even exactly told you where it is. He just says, go where I tell you, and it'll be great. And Abram believed it, which is why I think he's such a, an, an example of faith to us. So Abram 
through the next several chapters of Genesis, right? Abram's received the covenant. He knows what he needs to do. God told him to go to the promised land. He goes, right? So we're going to see how the, how the covenant kind of plays out in some of the things that happened to Abram over the next several chapters. I'm trying to recall. I think we end about 18, chapter 18 or something like that. So there's a famine in the land. What does Abram do? He takes off and goes to Egypt where because of the Nile River, there's usually good crops down there. So there, there's food in, in, in Egypt. So Abram takes off. What happens when he gets there? Sarah gets taken captive. Abram, upstanding man that he is, lies about his wife and says, no, she's, she's my sister. She is his sister, his half-sister. But to protect himself, I think, or maybe I'm judging him too harshly, but I look at what he did and it just seems like cowardice. So Abram's got his first chance to, be, be, um, to trust God, to take his promises and apply them to his life. And what does he do? He kind of bails. I'm probably being a little harsh on him. I don't know. He's kind of ruined God's promises in a way, right? God promised him um, children, that he would become a great nation. He's kind of left all that behind, right? He's he could be stuck in Egypt for the rest of his life. Sarah's now captive, so he can't have any children through her. But God's promises will always come true, and they don't really depend on what man's actions are. I mean, man's actions... I don't want to say they have no impact. Obviously, we make choices, and some of them are bad, and they will have consequences. But did they ultimately change God's plans? I don't think so. God's able to get things done even when we do the wrong thing. So let's focus on God's words and his perspective, see what he says uh, in, these, in these situations. So um, if I remember right, there aren't actually any God's words in this, in this little vignette about Adam's trip to, excuse me, Abram's trip to Egypt. But something happened that I think is the same as words. So after Pharaoh takes Sarai, God sort of spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. We find it a little peculiar that they thought of everything that happened to them as having some importance or some relationship to the gods that they had. They assumed God was speaking to them when bad things happened. So when something bad happened to Pharaoh, he says, wait a minute, what did I just do? Oh yeah, I took Sarai captive. That must be the problem. That's the way he normally responds to it. Leads me to believe, how do we respond to problems in our lives? Like when you have a... Um, I won't quite call it a disaster, but a downturn in, uh, in your life, and you think everything was going great, and then the car broke down. Do you look at it from your perspective, or do you look at it, maybe God's got a plan even in things that look bad to you. I don't often do that, but I'm learning. I think God's teaching me that we need to look at things with a godly perspective. Look for, okay, maybe he's got a plan here that I don't understand yet, and I need to be faithful, do what he says, and see what he's got for me, even in a bad situation. So what did this tell us about God? That's kind of a question for you, I, although I'm, I don't think I'm quite ready for an interactive session, but you know, think about it. What did, what did God do 
while Abram was in Egypt. I think God protected Abram. He protected Sarai, right? Nothing bad happened to either of them. They got Pharaoh a little mad, but God protected them. Pharaoh threw them out, right? What is it? What do you think God's, how does he value marriage, right? Abram and Sarai were married. I think God protects marriage. This was important to him, right? What does it say? Yeah, because of Abram's wife. I think God provided for Abram despite the famine. Now, we don't know because Abram chose differently, but had he stayed in Canaan, would God have provided for him there? I'm inclined to think yes. God promised to do it. He always comes through on his promises. He never backs up and says, ah, yeah, I forgot. I didn't want to do that. I changed my mind. God's not like that. God doesn't change his mind. If he promises something, he's going to make it happen. So when Pharaoh kicked Abram out, he gave him lots of, uh, I think it was sheep and cattle. Oh, and slaves. Go figure. So God provided for him in spite of that. Is, is God showing Abram the depth of his trust? Is this a time for Abram to say, gee, did I really trust in the promises God made me? Or am I being a little flaky? I don't know, but that's what went through my mind. I don't... Some of what I'm, some of what I'm doing is asking questions, and I don't want to be uh, dogmatic about the way I think God is reacting, but I, somehow I feel like this is what's going on in between the lines. As God is trying to teach Abram a lesson, he's, he's encountered some adversity. Well, how are you going to respond, Abram? Are you going to trust me? To some extent, Abram is still acting like the heathen from Ur that he, that he was, instead of the new man that God has brought out of that situation and chosen to bless him. Not because he earned it, but because God wanted to show the world what his power was. I've been through some difficult times, and I think it caused me to do a, a, an evaluation of my life and say, Mark, maybe you need to change some things here, guy, because... You're obviously screwing up. God's promised some things, and gee, makes me question God. And then I thought, no, he's faithful. I'm the one who's not faithful. So moving on, what's, or I have to have a little commentary here. You can kind of tell by the way the stories are laid out, or let me rephrase that. I conclude after looking at the stories in the Bible, right? Abram arrives in Canaan. Then we don't know quite how long after he takes off for Egypt. And then a little while later, we hear Abram and Lot talking that they've got a problem. They've got too many sheep and people and they need to separate. i got to think there's some separation of time here. I also conclude from that that Genesis isn't really a chronological history. I think I've seen um, some critics of the Bible. Matter of fact, we were just reading a book where... It makes God look out, well, that's a really crazy story. Why didn't he talk about this? God's not trying to reach, reach the needs of the unbelievers so much as he's trying to... I'm not saying this right. He's not, he's not trying to provide an answer for every critic. He's trying to lay out events in Abram's life that we can learn from. And here's the next one, right? So Lot decides, or Abram and Lot decide they need to separate, right? They've got, 
They've got too many animals. And what does Lot do? He looks down in the valley and he says, that looks pretty green. I'll take that. You know, Abram said, you choose. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. So Lot chooses the valley where the green grass is and the, the Jordan Valley. And, and God chooses to say that, you know, he kind of got second choice. And so he took the, the hills and the mountains there. I have to wonder, did Lot know how sinful Sodom and Gomorrah were? Something tells me he did, but he didn't see that as a, um, a terrible obstacle. He didn't realize the influence on his life that sin would have. And you can kind of see as the story goes on later, you all read it, where it causes Lot some problems. So after Lot takes off and goes down to the valley, interestingly, God renews his promise to him. As I went through Genesis, there's the covenant, then there's like another covenant and another covenant. It's like God is clarifying and expanding on what he meant in the original words, I think. But I kind of went through them and, you know, labeled them covenant number one, number two, number three. There's like six of them or something like that. So God says um, to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see. That could be a lot. I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. The original covenant didn't say that forever part. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So God is kind of clarifying what he's got in mind for Abram here. He's going to give him the land forever. Have you ever promised something to someone that says, I'll do it forever? It's kind of a big commitment. And I think it's interesting that, again, I'm thinking what Abram was thinking. Trying to, excuse me, I'm trying to think what Abram was thinking. Um, he let Lot have what was apparently the richer land, and he was up in sort of the rocky soil. I think Abram believed God was able to bless him even with the second choice, if you will, of, of land to be had. God is able to bless him in ways that he can't quite imagine. He can make rocky soil fertile. He can make his crops uh, abundant, his sheep to multiply. Abram believed that all, all wasn't as it appeared to the eyes, I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm not saying that we have the same promise that Abram got, but I think God has promised to be with us wherever we go, be that the good times or the difficult times. You know, our pastor in Southern California, his, his son is over in um, Afghanistan someplace, they don't know where. Those are tough times right now, and I'm thinking, how would they react if their son was to get injured? Praise God, right now, everybody's praying for him. <laughs> Excuse me. And he's, he's safe as far as we know, but how would you respond to those bad times, those challenging times? God has promised to be with us wherever we go. It's kind of like the promise that Joshua got when they were 
entering the promised land. God said, just as I had been with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I mean, he made promises to Joshua, probably a little bit more, but I kind of take them to heart. He said, Every, everywhere your foot goes, I have given you that land. Now, he meant literally giving them the land. I kind of interpret that to mean even, even when I'm going into a bad spot, when um, I can't think of an example right now, but if, if, if things were to, were to turn bad in my life, as I said, I've had some tough times in the past. Do I trust God in those circumstances and say, okay, God, this is what you've given me. I'm going to follow this path even though it looks dangerous. I'm going to put my feet out in faith and follow where you want me to go. Um, I think in that sense, God has given us all the things that come into our lives. So what happens next? There's a big battle. There's four kings from the north. They come down through the Jordan Valley. I think they came all the way from Mesopotamia or someplace like that. Lot and his family are taken captive. Abram takes his 318 men, plus he has, he has three other allies, and I, presumably they have an army, although it's not mentioned, and they go out and they rescue Lot. The battle covers roughly 240 miles from Sodom all the way north of Damascus. That's a long battle. When returning home after the battle, there's this sort of a strange occurrence in my mind. Melchizedek, this guy who comes out of no place, shows up along with the king of Sodom. It's like the battle's over, and um, I don't know, this is like the, uh, the conquering armies are, are having a little powwow about what to do next. Yeah, we don't quite know where Melchizedek comes from. There's different theories about what actually, you know, who is he and where did he come from? Um, but I... I'm trying to take it, excuse me, as Nate tells me, take the Bible for what it says and don't imagine what it doesn't say. He, um, he says that Melchizedek worships God, and Abram at this point treats him like God's representative. He says he's a priest, or the text says he's a priest. And I think, wow, it's, it's, it's as if God is meeting Abram after the battle and saying, so things worked out pretty good, didn't they? You trusted me, and I went before you in the battle and helped you conquer them, right? God fought for him. Abram is learning that God is able to bless him beyond quite what he can imagine. The king of Sodom offers him the plunder from the war, which I guess was pretty standard operating procedure during those times. So it says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram, excuse me, yeah, and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. What a great promise that God will fight for you and hand over your enemies to you. Wow. So when Lot was, let me back up. So what do we learn about God from this little story? I think when Lot removed himself from Abram, he lost God's protection. He went into, if you will, enemy territory. He was in with the, the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the army came down and conquered him. But God blessed and protected Abraham, even in the battle, 
And what I find fascinating in this story, I don't know about you, but I, when I look at Genesis, it's like those who get the conversations with God and the promises of God are kind of in this, this narrow little band. There's all these other people, and God kind of t- tends to focus on this narrow line of people from, Ab- oh, excuse me, from Adam to Abraham. And then Melchizedek shows up, and he acts like a worshiper of God and a priest of God. So God communicated to somebody else outside the normal channels that we see in Genesis. It makes me go, I don't quite know what to make of that, but that's got to be the, the conclusion you come to. Either he's not who he appears to be. Some people say it's actually God showing up uh, in the form of a man. I don't know if that's true or not. Or, this, or God spoke to somebody else or somebody else had faith. Perhaps through, uh, what is it, uh, my ignorance of Scripture is going to show up here, where God says they should be able to see who I am from my creation, right? I created it. They should look at creation and see me. You know, Did he get faith through looking at creation? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. So let's think what happens next here, right? The battle's over. Melchizedek shows up. God at this point, excuse me, Abraham at this point turns to God and, and he's, he's concerned. He says, I, I have no children. My estate is going to go to my slave. So God revealed him, himself to Abraham in a vision and reminded him of the covenant and the promises. Do you need to be reminded of God's promises for you? I know I do. I, I, I'm, you know, when trouble comes, I go, what is it? When in trouble or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. That's kind of me. So God's reminding him. I, I think we need to be reminded of God's promises, and that's what's happening here. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. So shall your dependents be. I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. God's just kind of renewing the promise and trying to reassure Abram. One thing we don't quite see, it's not real obvious from the text, but a lot of time passes between when Abram was called and now. I don't actually have a time frame for this, but I think years have gone by where Abram's going, you know, is God still working? Can I trust him? Uh, God's still there. He's just forming faith, I think, in Abram. At the end of this is one of the most important statements in the Bible, at least for me. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's like Wow, you no longer have to perform for God and somehow um, offer sacrifices or uh, you know pray in the temple five times a day or all these other. It's not a performance-based thing anymore. God is saying, if you have faith, if you trust me, that'll be counted as righteousness. So now, instead of being the uh, sinful unfaithful guy that I really am, God has declared me to be righteous. I, have, I, I'm, I, stand, I stand righteous before God now. I don't have to 
worry about his disapproval of my performance because it's not performance-based anymore. Abram's reminded that also that his offspring will be as numerous as the, as the, as the stars. And that must have been quite shocking to them uh, considering they were both quite old. They were way beyond childbearing years. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this, for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. At first I thought, this doesn't like fit in with the subject of God's provision of uh, protection and blessing and all, and all the good promises we said. This is kind of a bummer. Uh, why is this in here? What does, it, what does it tell you about God when you read this? I'm asking you the same questions I kind of ask myself. I just, I couldn't figure it out. And then I thought, wait a minute. God is predicting the future. Now, he actually did that before when he, he said the flood was going to come during the flood that uh, Noah's Ark and all that. But this, this to me was like big. God is saying, I even control time. I know what the future is going to be. It doesn't quite say it here, but elsewhere, it's not so much that he knows what's going to happen. He holds the future in his hands. He determines what's going to happen. This is a big promise. So when things look really, really lousy and you look out at it, you go, God can turn that around, turn it on its head, make what looks bad to turn out to be a good thing, right? When Jesus died, that looked like a bad thing. God's son came to earth and he died. Oh my gosh, God's plan didn't work out. No, it turned out to be the best thing ever for us. Yeah, it makes you wonder, why does God let the Hebrew, Hebrews be slaves? And I don't, I didn't find, and I asked Nate about it a little bit, what did the Hebrews uh, do? What did they do wrong that God is judging them to be slaves in Egypt? I don't think that's what happened here. They didn't do anything wrong, but sometimes bad things happen to good people. That's not quite in the story here, but we learn later on in Scripture that sometimes the rain falls on the good and the bad right? Sometimes children die. Sometimes they get in a car wreck. Bad things happen even to good people. But again, we have to trust that God has a good plan in mind, even though we can't quite see it. And I think God had a plan for the Hebrews when they went into slavery. And I can't hardly imagine that slavery was, I think, extremely difficult. But they multiplied like crazy and when they left Egypt in the end, the Egyptians gave them all kinds of money and food, and I don't remember all that they got. Uh, did God use it for a good purpose? I'm assuming yes. It's kind of like when, when Joseph went into slavery in Egypt, right? God, you meant it for bad. God meant it for good. So I think that's what's going on here. Do we trust God, even though your, your, your descendants will be slaves 400 years. Everyone, what do you think about that? 
I think Abram trusted him. He didn't understand it probably all. The last little statement I don't quite know what to make of, right? In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What does that tell you? I mean, the Amorites, they like come out of no place almost in this. In this. It tells me God has a plan for the Amorites, and it might be judgment, right? Later on, after they enter the promised land, the Hebrews kind of wipe out all the inhabitants of the land. Is God giving them a chance to change like the Ninevites, right? What was it? God sent, um, what's his name? Anyhow, to the Ninevites to, to get them to repent. And they did. Did the Amorites? It appears by what we had that they probably didn't. He's letting them reach their full iniquity. Again, I'm reading in between the lines here a little bit, but I have to wonder why God put that in there. And he puts it in there for a reason. So what's next? Again, we some time goes by, and uh, Sarai seems to be uh, f- frustrated that they don't have any children like God promised. And uh, I think she thinks maybe he's not going to come through. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden, right? A serpent made it sound like God was holding out on them, like, you could be gods, right? Does God always have our best interest at heart? Yes, every time. And that's what's going on here. I don't know why they don't have children up to this point, but God has chosen in his sovereign will that they're not going to have children until it meets his timetable. Timetable, And I think we'll see later on that that did happen. So Sarai says, I know, I'll help God out because he just needs a little help. And he gets Hagar, her slave, involved. And Abram, I don't know what he was thinking of. Ah, sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was going to make a joke there and I decided I'm not going to. But like a man, can you imagine? Oh, go have sex with this girl. Seems strange. Oh, sure. Why not? All right. Later, <laughs> Sarai uh, is thinking better of her, her choice. She's mad at Abram, mad at Hagar. Hagar finally runs off. What does God do? God goes and meets Hagar in the desert. I think it's fascinating. The angel speaks to Hagar. Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And God says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. What does that tell you about God? God cares about Hagar. She's not one of the Hebrews. She's probably a slave that came from Egypt. When we know she was an Egyptian, those slaves that Abram got when he was in Egypt, I'm just guessing here, but that's kind of what it feels like. God cares about Hagar, but he says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. He's kind of saying, I'm going to take care of you, even though you're not one of the, uh, the promised, you know, the, those that received the promise, I'm still going to protect you. God cares about people who aren't of Abram's line. What else does it tell you? Sarai, God doesn't need your help to carry out his plan. 
Right? Hagar, interestingly, recognizes and acknowledges God. She calls him the God who sees. Like, here I am out in the desert, me, a lowly slave, and you care enough about me to come all the way out here to the desert? She recognizes God sees her. They name the well, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right, Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. She, she names it that. Seems like a strong statement of faith from her. Um, we don't have anything else in Scripture that would show that she came to faith, but it sure seems like she recognizes God as in charge here, and, um, and she responds positively to him. Later, she calls out to God, like, I'm in trouble. She calls out to the God that she remembers meeting in the desert. What else happened in this little event occurs to me? What, what do we know about Abram? His flesh is apparently not dead anymore. They had a child. So for a guy who was past his childbearing years, we've just now got proof that God's at work. Something has changed. All right, moving on. 13 years have passed now. Abraham is 99. That makes Sarai 89. Again, God promises Abram, excuse me, he reminds Abram of the promises in the covenant. And then he adds circumcision. He also decides to change the names of Abram and Sarai. And you go, wow, what's going on here? I will greatly multiply your descendants, so they shall be too many to count. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He's speaking to Hagar here. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Right? It's not with Hagar and Ishmael. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which was exalted father, but your name, it was kind of a joke in a sense. He's an exalted father and he's got no kids. But your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. God is changing him his name. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Why is God doing that? And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of, the, of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is my covenant, which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You, you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Wow, something new is happening here. Maybe the Hebrews need uh, a, a reminder that at least the men would notice every day that he's going to circumcise them. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, which was a lesser princess, again, sort of a, a slight in a way. But Sarah, princess, will be your name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Things are looking up. 
Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. I thought, that's an interesting characterization. It must have been like a belly laugh. He must have really, that was a knee slapper. He's, he's again looking at his flesh and her flesh. Although, why is he looking at his? Because Ishmael was born. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which is, he laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. God's expanding it. This is going to be an everlasting covenant. Do we, do we need new names to remind us of who we are in God's eyes rather than the way we see ourselves? I think every, every time they called themselves by their new names, they would realize that God has done something in their life. Every time they called Isaac, they would remember how they laughed that God wasn't able, you know, they thought God wasn't able to fulfill his promise. I can see I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip some stuff here. We're going to skip forward to Isaac. Let's see if I can find it. Here we go. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to skip uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah right now because we're just running out of time. We've got something else to do. So Abraham, take now your son. This is God comes to Abraham several years later. Now the boy is starting to grow up a little bit. So several years have passed. And out of the blue, God says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That had to be a shocker. Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, so this is Isaac trying to figure things out. He says, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. So Abram's, I'm skipping the part about what's going through Isaac's mind as his father ties him up and puts him on the fire, or the wood for the fire. Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, The Lord Will Provide. So today it is said, I will be provided, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What is God trying to show us through this? He knew what Abraham was going to do. I think he was trying to show Abraham how much faith he had and whether God could be trusted. I'm not sure I could have done it. I'm pretty sure I couldn't have done it. I just, my brain probably doesn't have that much faith to offer my, my daughter. No, no, no. God has a great plan for us. He's faithful. When Abraham was leaving his, uh, his men and they were going up to sacrifice Isaac, he said, we'll come back. I don't think Abraham understood how God was going to do it, but he thought that maybe... Uh, not maybe, that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead after he had been slaughtered. I think it says that in the New Testament. 
God provides for our salvation. He provides the sacrifice. Instead of us having to do something to be righteous before God, He does it. He provides the sacrifice. He makes us righteous. We don't do anything to become righteous other than trust that He is able to carry it out. This is the notion of a substitute sacrifice, which is what we're going to um, commemorate today that God provided the sacrifice in his own son. Ted, I think it's up to you now. We're going to celebrate communion.